poverty in America has been slowly declining for the past decade. But in 2019, it fell off a cliff. That's according to the census's supplemental poverty measurement, which calculates poverty based on income and government assistance. The child tax credit helped bring those numbers down even more, cutting child poverty by roughly 30 percent for six months last year. But compared to other developed nations, the U.S. is still behind. In 2020, more than 4 in 10 American children lived in households that struggled to provide the basics. How do you think about your ABCs if you didn't go to sleep that night because there might have been gun activity in the neighborhood? So you have police sirens around, lights shining up all night long. You know, how do you think about, you know, your arithmetic if you haven't had breakfast that day, you know, and but now that goes into your behavior. So now you're acting up because you're hungry. How does someone as young as that able to explain I haven't eaten today? So because I'm hungry, I'm now irritated with the simplest forms of anything. That was Kenneth Hills, chief operating officer at Syracuse Community Connections. That's a social services organization providing support for predominantly African-American, low-income Syracuse residents. We'll hear from him later on in the show, but first, we talk about child poverty nationwide. This episode is part of our series on poverty in America that we're calling The Price of Poverty. And when it comes to child poverty, why is America such an outlier on the world stage? And what could the recent dips in child poverty teach us about what solutions do and don't work? We'll answer those questions and a lot more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay tuned. More's on the way. Let's welcome our first guests. Here to talk about it is Christopher Weimer. He's the director of Columbia University's Center on Poverty and Social Policy. Chris, welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me. Also joining us, Bryce Covert. She's a journalist who writes about the economy. Her guest essay in the New York Times is called We Pay to Keep the Old Out of Poverty. Why don't we do the same for the young? It helped inspire this conversation. Bryce, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the term childhood poverty because that can be confusing for some people. A member of our text club wrote, why do we call it child poverty? This seems to be another euphemism we use to ignore our treatment of the poor. Children don't have jobs. Bryce, what do we mean when we say child poverty? We are counting the number of children who live in low-income families. So it's fair, children don't have jobs, um, but they are disproportionately among the poor when we think of the population in our country of people who are poor. Um, And that's in large part because being a parent and trying to raise children is extremely expensive in this country. Um, We give parents very little financial support to do so. And so a lot of them end up living in poverty as they raise young children. Now, there are a couple of different ways to measure child poverty rates. The Census Bureau measures poverty with and without supplemental income, which includes benefits like SNAP and housing subsidies. Chris, if you look at the child poverty rate without those supplemental measures, it's pretty stagnant. Over some years, it's actually increased. So how do you measure child poverty for the most accurate picture? Yeah, so as you mentioned, we use a measure called the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which the uh, Census Bureau has been releasing since 2009. Um, And a group of us here at Columbia have taken that back historically, back to 1967, which was the earliest year we could um, calculate it. Um, But the advantage of the Supplemental Measure is that it counts a fuller array of resources that families have at their disposal um, in contrast to our official measure. Um, which only counts uh, before-tax cash income. So the supplemental measure will include uh, that cash income, but also will include 
resources that come from in-kind programs, so things like food stamps or housing subsidies, um, but also tax benefits, so things like refundable tax credits, including the child tax credit and the um, earned income tax credit. So when you look at child poverty through the lens of, of when you remove the supplemental income, what does that say to you about how families are, are surviving in America right now? Yeah, it's really, it's it's troubling. Um, you know, so the, the census numbers came out um, last month and, and we did find that child poverty fell to a historic low. Um, but that's after including all these resources from government policies and programs. So when you when you back that out and you look at the child poverty rate without, that's still over, you know, 20% of children. Um, so it's really the government policies and programs that are doing a heavy lift and, and reducing child poverty. And, you know, while that's worth celebrating, it's worth remembering that a lot of families are struggling and, and in need of some of that government government help. So when we talk about child poverty dropping since 1993, explain a little more specifically about why we've see, been seeing that drop. Yeah, we actually at Columbia, we go all the way back to the 60s. Um, so 1993 was kind of a a high point um, in following the recession of the early 90s. But when you go back to 1967 um, and, and trace child poverty out to today, um, you know, child poverty was over 20%, no matter how you measure it back in the 60s. Um, and that's fallen to, you know, 5.2% in 2021. Um, and like like I said, some of that's be- a lot of that progress that we made um, is, is only attributable to government policies and programs. Um, when you look at the trends without that, um, you know, it goes up and down with the economy, but um, has stayed above 20%, um, you know, all along the way. Bryce, what are your key takeaways when we look at the trends in child poverty rates? I agree with what uh, Chris said. And I think if you drill down in, you look at, for example, in the 90s, that's when there was a strong labor market. But I think more importantly, the federal government nearly doubled the earned income tax credit, which goes to many, many parents who work. And that is where we start to see child poverty falling pretty significantly. And then, of course, last year, as his numbers show, uh, the expanded child tax credit is responsible for a remarkable and historic drop in child poverty. And now that it's expired this year, we've seen that rate climbing back up, all of which points to the fact that we can reduce child poverty even further in this country if we want to, but it requires the government giving parents and families more financial resources the way that is done in most of our developed peers. Well, Bryson, I want to tease out something you said right there. You said parents who are who are working, when we look at these statistics, how often are we talking about families where one or both parents are employed but are still having trouble making ends meet? We are frequently talking about those families. Um, we know that, again, raising children is very expensive, and having a child is a real catalyst into poverty for a lot of American families. So that means people who are working and scraping by, maybe living paycheck to paycheck, you have a child and that just pushes you off the cliff. And we have similar poverty rates to other countries just based on income. This is something that happens in other countries as well, that working parents are earning money and still struggling to make ends meet, except that in other countries, countries, the governments step in and backstop them and offer them a safety net to make sure that they have enough to survive to take care of their children in a way that we don't. Our child poverty level is such a high outlier compared to so many other countries because we do not have something like a child allowance that gives families 
supplemental financial support during this very difficult financial time. According to the Brookings Institute, it now costs over $300,000 to raise a child in the U.S. That number has been adjusted for inflation, which has been steadily rising. Chris, how is inflation impacting families today? Um, families are really struggling with inflation, and the problem is often worse at, um, at lower income levels. Um, so there's been some really interesting work by economists uh, looking at whether these overall inflation numbers, which are published you know, each month, um, whether those actually hit the poor harder. And it turns out they, they seem to. Um, and so and why is that? That's usually because um, the types of things that comprise the family budget for low-income families, things like food, um, rent, gasoline, et cetera, some of those things, inflation has been, been rising the highest. Um, so it takes a while in the in the supplemental poverty measure for that inflation to kind of show up in the poverty line, but um, you know it, it definitely will, um, and you know it, it, and will illustrate the the sort of struggles that a lot of families are coping with right now. Bryce, three hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. How are average Americans affording this? Not just people who would be considered um, living under the poverty level by by these measurements, but also families that are on the bubble. Yeah, this struggle to for afford raising a child reaches pretty far up the income ladder for sure. Um, it it's not just the basics, although those are expensive. And as Chris was saying, inflation right now means that those costs are rising for food, for shelter, for transportation. But it's things like child care. It's things like aftercare if your child is school aged. Um, we don't offer much of a system for any of this. And it's very, very expensive. So parents are basically on their own on the hook to come up with that money in a way that again, other countries tend to have some kind of early childhood program that is much more affordable, if not free, and offers quality uh, options to parents. And we just don't do that here. We don't have a system like that. Now let's add a parent's perspective to the conversation. Sequoia Coleman is a mother from Jackson, Mississippi, with a nine-year-old and another on the way. Sequoia, welcome to 1A. Sequoia Coleman is a mother from Jackson, Mississippi, with a nine-year-old and another on the way. Sequoia, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, you lost your job during the pandemic because of child care issues. What happened? My job was so far, um, and my vehicle ended up breaking down. Um, I would have to drive, like, 40 minutes to get to work from where I will. First, I had to drive to my mom's house, who's probably, like, 30 minutes away from me. Then I would have to drive to work, which is, like, 40 minutes away, and no child care. But the um, CTC um, came in and, and kind of, you know, helped cover some things. But it was a little too late, but it still helped cover a lot of my expenses. The CTC, you mean the child tax credit? Yes, ma'am. When you talk about traveling to work and traveling to your mom, I mean, how much was, was gas eating up your budget at that point? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, probably a week I was spending, like, Ooh, maybe a hundred dollars in gas because I had a truck at the time, so <laughs> it was it was very expensive on gas. And then I worked in a completely different county from where I live, so it was it was a bit steep. When you were working, you didn't qualify for SNAP, but when you lost your job, you could get SNAP benefits. I'm curious to hear what you think about the income thresholds for SNAP and other types of government assistance. Um, I don't think I can stress this enough. <laughs> I say it all the time, um, even when I was working, like working parents need SNAP too, you know, 
because sometimes we don't have um, enough income for food, even working, because you have <clears throat> other expenses, like especially being single parents, you have rent and lights and etc. So a lot of times I feel working parents need SNAP just as much as non-working parents, but um, in the state of Mississippi, it doesn't work that way. I hope you can share with us, you know, I'm thinking about your nine-year-old and nine-year-olds can, they can pick up on stress. <laughs> they can be very aware of the situation when there's some instability. And I know as a mom, you probably really wanted to shield your child from that. But did you get a sense that your your child was, was aware of some of your concerns about the situation you were in? Um, I think... She kind of felt it like once our vehicle um, took a turn, mm-hmm. <laughs> once our de- vehicle stopped running, um, I think she started feeling the pressure. Um, but I do a good job at kind of hiding yeah. pain. So she, but she's a very, very intelligent nine year old. So she, it doesn't take much for her to pick up yeah. on things. And she's, um, but she's a very understanding child. So she know if, um, hey, mommy has to let the truck sit down another week in order to put food in the house, or mommy has to, you know, pay the light bill this week, and we may have to pinch pennies on foods, and, you know, maybe we can't get that big bag of tacos you want today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and um, you know, we had to penny pinch and pull back on things, and she definitely picked up, but she definitely understood. Well, Sequoia, I'm, I'm wondering what it was like for you, though, too, because that's... That's a lot of stress to be under as you're trying to figure out how to make ends meet for you and your daughter. Definitely a lot of stress. Um, It was definitely a lot of stress. I remember um, when my truck did quit and I was still trying to get to work, my mom would um, come over and pick up my daughter so she could still, you know, because I didn't have um, child care. So my mom was my outlet for child care. And, um... I remember a co-worker that I was working with, she would come and pick me up for work, but it came a time where her spouse um, didn't like that so much and she no longer could give me a ride. So I am trying to walk literally from another county to get to work mm-hmm. and from work and I had to cross a freeway. And that was, it, it, it definitely took a toll on me as a mom because you definitely want to keep providing for your children. Yeah. And when when that source of income is gone, you know, it, it's very hard. You don't want to see your children suffer for anything. And it hurts when they have to. <clears throat> um, it hurts you to see that pain of them, you know, like, Mommy, just don't worry about the job. Or, Mommy, but it's hard to tell Mommy not to worry because you have all these bills and things coming in and you have to wear it because you have to get your vehicle going or you know it's it's a lot it's a lot you definitely wear it how much of a difference did the child tax credit make for you and your daughter it made a huge difference for me um it made a huge difference because um stuff that i wasn't able to be um i was getting paid bi-weekly so some things that i wasn't able to purchase bi-weekly I could, like, food and, you know, to pay my mom for um, her childcare service for me. And, you know, I didn't have to, with the childcare, I didn't have to worry about 
where her next pair of tennis shoes was going to come from or her next meal was going to come from because I was I was confident that I had that coming, you know, monthly until it stopped. What do you think people misunderstand or or just don't quite get about what it means to be a working parent and the difficulty around making sure your your child, your family is provided for? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think, um, especially here where we live, a lot of jobs don't understand um, because um, I, I actually ended up switching jobs through the pandemic and ended up um, changing over to another job that was in my county and childcare again was still my factor. Um, however, I was told by a management to um, school was getting ready to start back and I had no one to put my child on the bus and I was told to either pick between my job or leave my child outside at five in the morning where it's dark and our crime is very high here mm-hmm. to leave her outside in the dark alone to catch um, the bus to school and of course I picked my child but um you know, you don't want to let your benefits go, but when you're given that kind of ultimatum, what do you do? I wish jobs here had more understanding on, you know, especially being single parents and how we don't always have that alliance. I'm sorry, how we don't have that alliance to always have that extra helping hand or, you know, just a little more understanding, especially if they have kids as well, because everyone is not able to pay $600 a week for child care. Everyone is not able to go to grandmother's house. You know, my grandmother died before I was born, so there's no grandmother's house for me. But thanks to my daughter, she has great grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Um, um, with that being said, my mom still can't get from one side of town to the other in time to get her on a bus. So, therefore, that job I did have to lose um, because of my situation. And I wish there were more understanding. I wish there were more you know, outlets or some kind of resources for us to go to besides vouchers and things of that nature for child care. If you could talk to lawmakers in Mississippi or you could talk to lawmakers here in D.C., what would you tell them about the sort of resources that would help you and your daughter and, and the little one you have on the way? Um, not just for my family, but for other families I see as well going through these. I would definitely um, tell them to, hey, look on it, you know, you know, walk, in, walk into my house. Forget our shoes, okay? Everybody can't fit the same pair of shoes. Just step into my house. Just see the things that I deal with on a daily basis. Just see, you know, just come in and, and guide your light and help us, you know, just help us to have a, a space where mothers can be safe with leaving their children in a place and don't have to worry so much because I know for a fact there are other states that um actually that will help with transportation for people to get to work. I know other states help with childcare on that same job with the transportation and a little bit come out they check a week. I wish Mississippi had something like that. And if I could speak to lawmakers, I would definitely talk to them about how do we go and who do we need to talk to to put those things into place to get those things here like that. Because it's a lot of mothers that are willing to work, want to work, but we can't work. 
It's not everybody's not lazy sitting on their bottoms. Everybody don't want to trust me. Everybody do not want to rely on Snap. Um, some people wish I would let Snap go any day to go to work. Um, and with that being said, I just wish that um, they would hear this, and I wish they would navigate and and help us figure out a way so we could work, so we could have childcare for our families. Um, come up with some type of program or you know, center or something just to help us so we won't have to rely on the system so much. Sequoia, I, I'm, I would just really, I'm really curious to hear when you think about the future for your daughter and, and your soon-to-come child, what future do you want for them? Of course, um, a brighter future, especially, um, I know crime is on the rise everywhere, um, but here is it's every single day. In no way, no way. I didn't have to grow up here in Jackson like that. Um, the streets was very safe. We rode our bikes. Um, these children can barely ride on the sidewalk without it being a drive-by. Um, you definitely want better for your children. You definitely want to make money to move to give them a brighter future. Um, for my for my nine-year-old, I would definitely take her out of this whole city <laughs> if I could at the state. Um, but I don't have the the funds to do that. Um, my unborn child, I would do the same. Um, not all Mississippi is bad. I will say that. And, and this state has not always been this way. Um, but definitely, I would make a, a better move <laughs> than what I have had to bring them into. That's Sequoia Coleman. She's a mother from Jackson, Mississippi. Sequoia, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. We're discussing childhood poverty in America. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. Let's get back to our conversation on child poverty in America. Let's turn to another city. Syracuse has one of the highest child poverty rates out of all big cities in the U.S. The child poverty rate was over 41% there last year, according to census data. Now, before the show, I spoke to Kenneth Hills of Syracuse Community Connections. That's a social services organization. They provide support predominantly for African-American, low-income Syracuse residents. And I started by asking him why so many Syracuse children live in poverty. Part of the reason the number is so high is... Lack of jobs. When I was growing up in Syracuse, there was a big factory sector in New York. So when those jobs were gone, you know, if you might have been a second generation or possibly becoming a third generation factory worker, you know, that not having any kind of job that would pay as well would affect families. Families moving out, um, families unable to move out. And then, you know, education comes along the side of that. You know, when I when I hear you describe how some of these these kids would react or respond or be affected by their circumstances. It, it makes me think about the way I've heard people talk about poverty and policy around poverty. It, it's It's easy to say, you know, yes, we don't want kids to be hungry. Yes, we want kids to be safe. We want them to learn. but you you can't really direct policy at a child without involving the family, without involving the adults in their lives. But in your experience, can you really separate the child from the family? Can you help the child without helping the family? Well, you can help the child, give them all the resources, but if you're going back home to the 
the drug addiction, the gang violence, the street life, the lights off, the lack of food in the home, then how do you expect that child to overcome it? So yes, it, you have to affect the family as well as affect the child. Giving, the, giving parents the opportunity to better literacy if they didn't finish school or giving them you know, avenues where if they're not sure about their kids, you know, common core math has changed things. You know, I, could, I was able to do basic math, but I have a, I have a fourth grade child and that became difficult for me, and I'm, you know, someone who's considered college educated. So, I mean, we have to make sure that families have, can feel confident in assisting their child in the school system. But I feel, you know, if a child sees a parent working hard and doing well, that'll give them a chance to want to do the same. You know, but if you live in the mud and you think the mud's the best thing, then how do you go above it? That's Kenneth Hills of Syracuse Community Connections. Well, Bryce, so how different is the U.S. from other countries when it comes to the type of resources given to families and children? We are a real outlier. Um, I mean, first of all, our child poverty rate is just uh, so much higher than many other places around the world. We rank 38 out of 40 countries in the um, um OECD. We're not just behind sort of the ones that you might expect, Finland, Denmark, France, but also Slovenia, Estonia, Russia, Mexico. We really are an outlier. And when I talk to economists and researchers about why that is, every single time they point to the fact that we don't have something along the lines of a child allowance. As Chris was just saying, we don't tend to give families and parents cash without strings attached when their children are young. Maybe we give them food stamps for food. Maybe we give them, as he said, housing vouchers to cover housing. But there are so many costs that come up that can't be covered by those programs. Think about diapers, for example. You can't use food stamps to buy diapers. And there are so many things like that. And we have one program um, that's cash welfare, temporary assistance for needy families. But there have been so many requirements added to that program that it reaches very few families. So in this country, there's very little cash assistance that you can expect when you are a parent trying to raise a child. That's just not true in other countries. They offer parents unrestricted cash to try to make them help ends meet. I can hear someone who doesn't have children listening to this conversation and and saying, well, if you choose to have children, why is this the government's problem? And and Bryce, I'm sure you've bumped up against that in your reporting. And what's your response? Well, first of all, we all benefit when we have children who are being born and raised and we are supporting their development to become the future of this country. They are uh, our, our future citizens. They're our future workers. This, this is our country. Uh, so yes, each individual family is making choices about whether and how many children to have, but we all benefit when people are raising children to the next generation. And we all owe it to each other, I believe, to help everyone have, you know, the basic minimum, right? Whether you have children or not, you deserve to have food to eat. You deserve a roof over your head. These things are harder to afford when you have young kids in your house at a time when you're maybe not earning as much as in your later years, when you have to shell out for, you know, school supplies and clothes and more food on the table. Uh, I believe we can all step in to help parents raise their children and foster their development and give them a good start in life. 
That's Bryce Covert. She's an independent journalist who writes about the economy. Also with us, Christopher Weimer, the director of Columbia University's Center on Poverty and Social Policy. Bryce, Christopher, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.